Our New Testament readings from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. When ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series through the Gospel of of Matthew. And if, if you'll notice, we've actually jumped jumped ahead a passage in the Olivet Discourse. We're, we're coming here to the conclusion, and that's because uh, one of our elders, Chris Sutton, will be preaching on the parable of the tenants next week. But before we come to this, this conclusion um, of the Olivet Discourse, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have given to us, all of the many gifts that you have lavished upon us. And Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gospel that, that confronts us in, in this passage, the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is, Lord. And I do pray that all that follows, Lord, would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, and Lord, that through your spirit you would apply these truths to our life. We ask this in the name of Christ and in the power and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, like I said, t- today we come to the, the end of Jesus' teaching to his disciples on the Mount of Olivet. We, we come to the conclusion of what we might call Jesus' final sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we come to this passage, we ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus is saying here? Is he saying that we are saved based on our service to the least of these? Is, is, is Christ saying that our relationship with God is, is ultimately determined 
by the way that we have shown care and mercy to our neighbor. Essentially, is, is Jesus saying that Christianity is ultimately about what we do? And if that's the case, well, there's, there's nothing especially distinctive about Christianity. There's, there's nothing unique that we would find here. But I want to make the case that as we move through this passage, we actually find a number of unique claims. Claims about Christ, claims about who we are, and claims about how we are saved. And as we wrestle with those claims, we actually find the surest footing that spurs us on to love, to serve our neighbor, and especially the least of these. And as we will see, this passage also brings this this notion of, of personhood to the forefront. So with that said, let us together look at this passage under two headings. We have Christ's personhood, and we have our personhood. So let us, let us look at this passage in turn under those two headings. The first, looking at Christ's personhood. And I think what is foundational for understanding this passage is the way that, that Christ frames his words to both the righteous and to the unrighteous. In contrast to the unrighteous, in contrast to the goats, Jesus says this to the righteous, to the sheep. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And when the righteous ask what it was that they did all of these things to Christ, Christ answers, or sorry, we read, And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Christ here identifies with the least of these. And these are the persons who needed care and love and service and mercy. These were the persons who needed to receive the love of others. And it is these persons that Christ identifies with. Again, in very strong language, he says, as you did to them, you did to me. This is startling. The one who identifies himself as the king, he also identifies himself as one who is in need of the love of others. Again, we are told, and the king, the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, You did it to me. The king, the glorious ruler of all things, identifies himself with those who are in need of receiving the love and care of others. And so what are we to make of this? Does Christ rule all things, the king, or does he receive all things as a gift? And in a way, we can answer both. To understand this, we must understand who the Son is. And, and this, is, this is a bit of a theological dive, but, but bear with me because I promise that this is essential for getting at what Christ intends in this passage. The Christian God. The Christian God exists as the Trinity, as, as one divine person, or sorry, one divine nature in three persons. The one God exists 
as Father and Son and Holy Spirit and, and the three divine persons. They just are three distinct, three personal modes, ways of possessing the one divine nature. And bear with me. If that's true, what does it mean to be the Son? Well, the Son is the one who receives his being, the one divine nature from the Father, and then turns back to the Father in love. He turns back to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. To be the Son is to receive from the Father and then to turn back to the Father in love. The Son receives and then turns back in love. We see a beautiful pattern there. This receiving from and turning to the Father in love, the love of the Holy Spirit, this is just what it is to be the Son. And this means that the Son receives who he is from the Father. The Son is who he is because of the Father's love for him. The Father gives him the fullness of the greatest gift there is, the divine nature itself. This is, this is what we mean when we say that the Father eternally begets the Son. And so, the Son is God. He is the King. And at the same time, the Son is who He is because He has received the love of another, the Father. The Son is the greatest of all kings. He is God. But he is also the greatest of all receivers. He receives the divine nature itself from the Father. The Son is God, and at the same time, his very person is a gift from the Father. The person of the Son, we might say, is both the great God and the great gift received. Bear with me, because we can go further. And I think we have to to understand this passage. In John chapter 1, we're told that all things were made through the Word. All things were made through the Son. And this has huge implications for understanding the connection between the Son and all of creation. St. Augustine is, is helpful here. Augustine tells us that because all of creation was made through the Son, that in the Son, in the person of the Son, we see the proper pattern for all of creation. The Son is like a kind of mold that forms all of creation. Bear with me. Again, the Son is from and to the Father. And so Augustine tells us that creation follows the same basic pattern of being from and being to. The Son is from and to the Father. And so creation is from and to God. From and to, from and to creation receives its life from God and then turns back to God in love. So let me, let me put forward a, a, an analogy, an illustration. The sun, he's like a beautiful landscape, right? And, and humanity is like a picture, when we're actually in the landscape, we see it with depth and width and height. Think about being in a beautiful landscape. We smell the leaves, we feel the grass, 
We taste the air. We hear the breeze. But when we try to capture this landscape, when we try to transpose it onto a, a, a picture, yes, we see the resemblance. Yes, we can identify the landscape. We understand how it reflects the landscape after which it was modeled, but we know that it's only a picture of something far greater and far grander. And we are the picture, and the sun is that actual breathtaking reality of this beautiful landscape. The sun is the very landscape, that wonderful homeland, of which all of creation, humanity included, is just a picture. Again, the sun is from and to the Father. And that's the pattern, the beautiful pattern we see in all of creation. That's the landscape. We are the image. We are from and to God. But what that means is that when the son becomes human, he lives the perfect human life before God in neighbor. When he becomes human, he becomes that clearest picture of the landscape. When the son becomes human, what happens is the divine pattern becomes a human particular. From and to the Father, from and to God. Okay, so I know that was a lot, but I promise if we can trace those threads, it puts us in the position I think we need to be in to really understand what Christ is getting at here. So what does that look like in the life of Christ? Well, in line with who the Son is, much of Christ's life is receiving love from another. As was the case for all of us, Christ's humanity began as a child in the womb. He was dependent on his mother for his very life. And Christ, once born, he was in a state of infancy. And he was completely dependent upon the love and care of his parents. A human infant, even a human toddler, they will die if they are left alone. An infant, a toddler, they need the love of others, and the same is true for the infant and toddler Christ. And so Christ received the love of his parents, and he turned back to them in love, the very same pattern that he had been carrying out eternally with his father. Again, the son just is the archetype, the mold, the pattern of the proper human life. And yet, very likely, Christ often went hungry. Think about the life of Jesus. For instance, when Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to the temple to offer a sacrifice, which was required for the first child of the mother, they don't offer a lamb. They offer a pair of birds. And this was only an option for those families who could not afford a lamb. Mary and Joseph, we see, were not well off. Even more, Joseph's absence in the gospel narrative, it, it implies that he had died sometime in Jesus' life, possibly very, very early in Jesus' life. Jesus knew what it meant to be fatherless, which, which only added to those difficult economic circumstances that he was in. Jesus, too, was a sojourner. He was an immigrant, spending time as a child in Egypt as he fled from the wicked king Herod. And again, we read over and over in the gospel narratives about Jesus going into the home of another, receiving food in the home of another. Jesus is the recipient of hospitality. He receives the gracious love of another human being. And really, really think about this amazing truth. The one in whom all things were created, in whom all things hold together, every single atom of the universe, that one, the absolute king, 
he receives the love of others. The one who holds together the the chemical compounds of his mother's milk in his divinity, well, he receives that very milk as the gift of life in his humanity. The one who holds together the life of every lamb across the whole globe in his divinity, well, he can't even afford one such animal in his humanity. The one who holds together each particle of Bethlehem's soil in his divinity, he has to flee this town for his life in his humanity. The one who holds together the laws of of thermodynamics that you need to cook food, and he does this in his humanity, well, he's the first, this is the same one who receives this food as a gift in his humanity. The one whose very person is to receive from the Father and turn back in love, this is the very same pattern he was well pleased to perform in his humanity. These, These are amazing truths. What joy, what humility, what graciousness. We should never cease to wonder at the identity of Christ, the God-man. And so, having been a helpless infant, having experienced the bite of poverty, having mourned the loss of his human father, having felt the disorientation of uprooting and immigration, having received a warm meal prepared by a gracious host, what else can we say but this? And the king will answer the righteous. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This communicates to us the depth of the incarnation of Christ becoming human. Christ became human and experienced firsthand the most difficult trials and sorrows and miseries of life in a fallen world. For example, Christ as a child, a Jewish child sojourning in Egypt, He needed the mercy and care of Egyptians, people whose larger society probably did not look kindly upon his presence in the country. To serve the least of these is to serve those who face the sorrows and the trials that Christ faced. And if you have no love for those who suffer in this way, you will have no love for the human life that Christ himself actually lived. Or or think of the people who, after praying in the temple, they they look the other way when they saw this fatherless child, newly settled in Nazareth from Egypt, a boy of very little means. And yet, this boy is the very God who they worshipped not five minutes before. This is the wonderful mystery, the amazing humility of the Incarnation. And the king will answer the righteous. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And what this tells us is that receiving the love of others is no affront to our dignity. It's no knock on our dignity. Again, we have been made in the Son, the one whose very person is a receiving and a turning back in love. If this receiving is no knock on the dignity of God, the Son himself, then receiving is no knock on our dignity. With that said, let me ask you a diagnostic question. How well can you receive a gift? Really think about it. Yes, we we, we should never receive gifts with entitlement. But do gifts make you embarrassed? Are, Are you uncomfortable when you receive from another? 
Do you see yourself as a kind of pure and simple benefactor and never actually receiving yourself? For instance, if, if someone offered right now to drop you off a meal, would your first impulse be to say, no, 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 thank you. I don't need it. Do you realize that there is a deep service in receiving the love of another? Not with entitlement, not with embarrassment, but with deep and sincere gratitude. There's something deeply sun-like about this, something that deeply accords with the one in whom we were, we were made when we receive gifts with gratitude. So, so here's an exercise if you struggle with this. Next time somebody offers to do something for you or to give something to you, just say yes, no matter how uncomfortable that might make you. Again, if it's not a knock on Christ's dignity to receive, to receive his very person as a gift from the Father, believe me when I say it's no knock on your dignity. And that brings us to our second and final point, our personhood. Again, we've looked at Christ's personhood, and so with that frame, let's look at our own. Let's look at what this means for us. Again, in this passage, Jesus directs us to the need Sorry, he directs us to those in need and care, uh, who, who need the care and love of others. Again, Christ directs us to persons who need food and drink, welcome and hospitality, clothes and shelter, who need visitation and healing. And yet we might ask, do such people, do they really make a claim upon me? For instance, uh, Caitlin Tiffany, uh, a writer for The Atlantic, she alerts us to, to what she sees as a concerning trend in our modern society. And, and this trend, it, it makes virtuous, it, it idealizes casting off any obligations that we might seem to owe to other people. For instance, she provides a sample social media tweet. It goes like this. I don't know who needs to hear this, but if someone hurts your feelings, you are allowed to get rid of them. Tiffany also explains that people are hungry for definitions of toxic. Because if a person is toxic, then I can ethically cut them out of my life and I have no obligations to them. And so what is it that qualifies as toxic? What criteria allows me to sort of banish someone from my love and care? Well, as this tweet suggests, the criteria is actually quite low quite minimal. Uh, Tiffany actually quotes uh, a WebMD page that defines a toxic person as, quote, anyone whose behavior adds negativity and upset to your life. If a person produces you, it produces in you, right, any thoughts or emotions or feelings or experiences that are not anything but always positive, send them off. If they burden you with their needs and they offer no help for you to achieve your own goals or plans or ambitions, get rid of them. And so we're not surprised later in the article to find Tiffany asking, seemingly in desperation, if the people in our lives are in our responsibility, then what is? And the answer, of course, is, is myself. Only and always myself. Me and me alone, that is my sole responsibility. And where does that leave us? Well, we are lonely. But what else can we expect from an ethos that sees the responsibility that is due to another person as a burden, as toxic? 
And here's the thing. There is no true human relationship that will not add negativity and upset to your life. Any close friends will bring both the highs and the lows of human life with them. And to reject any and all relational negativity and upset just is to reject friendship. It is to embrace loneliness. If any responsibility I place upon you becomes toxic the moment that it starts to cut against your ambition, then I can't really share my true self with you. I can't share my struggles and my difficulties with you. I can't ask you for help. I can't ask you for food or for drink, for hospitality or shelter, for care or physical presence, or, or at least I can't ask for these things when you don't feel like it. Quite simply, what this means is that we can't be friends. And what's the result? Again, we are lonely. For instance, back in May last month, the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, he released an advisory on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And he, in this document, is recognizing our society's loneliness, and he goes as far, again, as to call it an epidemic. He says we should approach it with the same intensity that we approach other critical health issues, things like tobacco, things like obesity, things like substance abuse. And what that tells us is that our loneliness is that bad, and it requires drastic responses. And yet, what is it that we hear from our culture? I don't know who needs to hear this, but if someone hurts your feelings, you are allowed to get rid of them. But what again? Does Christ tell us? And the king will answer the righteous. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What is our problem? Well, for one thing, at the core of our cultural mindset is this belief that my responsibilities are my choice. I choose for whom I am responsible. We forget that we're all thrown into this web of relations with people who are responsible to us and we for them. But we think that if you cause me negativity and upset, then I can get rid of you. My social obligations are mine to choose as my goals and my ambitions see fit. We think this is what we want, but trust me, we do not really want this. I listened to uh, an interview recently with, with Niobe Way, a psychology professor at NYU, and, and she works with young boys. And her work addresses what she calls the crisis of connection, the, the epidemic of loneliness in our modern society. And it was interesting because in the interview, she said that young people are desperate for friendships. And when she said that the boys she worked with described friendship, they said this, a friend is someone to share their secrets with and not be laughed at. A friend is someone to share their secrets with and not be laughed at. She also said that, that girls of that age tend to say the same thing. They just don't add the fear of, of being laughed at. And as I listened to this, I, I was struck by how this deep desires, it, it resonated with the words of another young man. St. Augustine, as he speaks of his own adolescence, he writes this in his Confessions. What was it that delighted me except to love 
and to be loved. What was it that delighted me except to love and to be loved? And Augustine, as we read in his book, he, he seeks to fulfill this desire in many wrong ways, but, but, but nonetheless, what he most deeply wants is, is right. He wants to love and to be loved. He too wants a friend. He wants someone to share his secrets with and not be laughed at. And here's the Christian conviction. All persons deserve this. All persons desire to love and to be loved. This is what we desire And this is what we were made for. It's not a matter of a person's status or accomplishments or or whether or not we think they deserve this. To deny this from anyone is to deny their personhood. The core Christian conviction about personhood is that personhood is a gift. Just as with the son in whom we were made, our personhood is something we receive. It's not a knock on the dignity of the son to receive his personhood as a gift from the father. And what that means is it's no knock on our dignity to receive our personhood either. And think about it. Like the infant Christ, all of us come into this world fully dependent on the love and care of another. We begin life by only and always receiving gifts. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre He reminds us that especially as we see children, we must remember what we ourselves used to be. McIntyre reminds us that none of us lead a life of independence. All of us are alive precisely because of the care that we have received from another. And all of us either now are, or if we live long enough, will be very much dependent upon the loving care of others. And no one is more or less a person in this sense. Again, personhood is a gift, and each person desires to love and to be loved. And this is true whatever care they need, whatever abilities they may or may not have, whatever their status, whatever their resources. Again, nobody is here today because of our own independence. If that were the case, we would all be dead. And there's no shame or loss of dignity in being cared for. All is a gift. And just like God the Son, again, our very personhood is a gift. And this means that we can recognize the claims that other persons make upon us to love and to be loved. This is the pattern of personhood. However, the temptation of our fallen humanity is to make personhood something that a human must achieve. And this allows us to grant personhood to some and to grant those claims, but then to deny it to others. For instance, perhaps we think that the child in the womb is not a person until it can meet some biological or mental criteria. In that case, personhood is an achievement. It's not a gift. And so it can be denied And to be sure, criteria like this, it always denies, always risks denying the personhood of of people who are living outside of the womb. And of course, the personhood of the pregnant mother, especially the pregnant mother in need, makes a demand upon us. As Notre Dame professor Carter Sneed writes of such mothers, he says, Her neediness is a summons to everyone who is able to come to her aid and extend the same gestures of just generosity, hospitality, and accompaniment in suffering on which they themselves have depended and from which they have benefited in their own lives as vulnerable, dependent beings. 
Or perhaps we think that those coming from other countries do not make demands upon us because they have not met the criteria of coming from our own country or our own culture. Again, in that case, personhood is an achievement, not a gift, and it can be denied. Perhaps we think that someone who has made bad choices in the past, who has, has, has seemingly made a mess of their lives, perhaps they make no demand upon us. They've made their bed, and now they have to lie in it. But in that case, personhood is not only an achievement, but it's something that we can risk losing. Because of your bad choices, you have forfeited your personhood. However, in contrast to all of this, Christ commands us to feed the hungry, to clothe the needy, to welcome the lonely, to care for the sick, to visit the prisoner. Our very personhood is a gift from God, and yet we deny this gift to others. But there's more. Christ warns us that we can reject not only the personhood of others, but even our own personhood. In this passage, Christ speaks of eternal destinies. He says to the righteous, to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice what Christ says to the righteous. They will inherit a kingdom prepared for them from the beginning of the world. And there are at least two important things to note here. The first is that to inherit something is to receive something based on who you are. Children receive an inheritance because they are children of their parents. It's a gift, but it's a kind of gift based specifically on who you are. Secondly, it is prepared before the foundation of the world. And what this means is that this inheritance is the goal of the creation of humans. Before God created humans, this inheritance was the telos, the purpose, the fulfillment, the fruition of God's plans for humanity. This is the oak tree of the acorn of our creation. And this means that there is continuity between loving the least of these and the ultimate flourishing for us that God has prepared before the foundation of the world. And so let's draw these threads together, that of inheritance and that of fruition, but let's do so by looking at the punishment of the unrighteous. Christ says to the unrighteous, to the goats, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. When we reject the personhood of the least of these and the claims that they make upon us, we assume that others are limits and obstacles to who we are. We assume that the way to most truly be ourself, well, we do that when we pursue our own goals and ambitions and fulfillments irrespective of other people. Again, the way to flourish is to avoid, quote, anyone whose behavior adds negativity and upset to your life. But of course, this anyone just is everyone. There's no way around that. What is the direction of a life like this? It's total isolation. And so a person should not be surprised to hear Christ say, depart from me. They have been running from Christ and other persons their whole life. As Paul tells us in Romans 1, a key aspect of God's judgment is letting people pursue their disordered desires. And that's exactly what we see here. This judgment is the culmination of just such a life. 
C.S. Lewis puts this well, and, and this is a, a bit of a long quote, but it's a good quote. Lewis writes, Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. To love is to be vulnerable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. What is some of the worst advice in the world? I don't know who needs to hear this, but if someone hurts your feelings, you are allowed to get rid of them. Well, welcome to hell, the place where you can get rid of all other persons and all of their demands upon you for all eternity. Welcome to complete isolation. This is the culmination of just such a life on earth. But again, the same is true. We find that same continuity for the sheep. The persons who make up our world, who make demands upon us, God uses them to mature us into what he intends us to be. Do you want to grow in maturity? Then take seriously the responsibilities that other people and this community place upon you. These are not limits or obstacles to your flourishing. These are the very means by which God makes you flourish. As you serve those around you, God will grow you into what he intends you to be. But again, this is also an inheritance. It's a gift we receive because of our relationship to our Father, our Heavenly Father. Again, our personhood and our whole existence is a gift from God, but we have rejected this gift. God has laid out his wonderful path of flourishing, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we have rejected this. To some degree or another, all of us have denied the personhood of others and of God. And in the process, we've also denied our own personhood, and, and we are alienated from God for that reason. But of course, this is the whole reason why God the Son became human, why the divine pattern became the human particular. He did so to give us a gift. This is always God's way. Both creation and salvation are gifts of God. Think about it. If, if salvation was something that we earned, then it would simply reinforce all of those destructive tendencies. If salvation was a matter of living a certain quality of life that met certain criteria then we would be right back to achieving our own personhood. It would only reinforce our sin and alienation. And this is why our salvation is not founded upon our works. And this is what makes Christianity unique. Rather, the son in whom we were made, he became human and lived the life that we should have lived. With every bit of his humanity, he received and turned ever and always with complete love to God. And so what does that mean for us? Well, if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in Christ, then Christ identifies with us in a special way. When Christ refers to the least of these as his brothers, at one level he means all of humanity because of the incarnation. But at a deeper level, he also means his brothers and sisters who have placed their faith in him. And for these brothers and sisters, he not only identifies with them before humanity, 
he also identifies himself with them before God. Friends, when we stand before God, we can say of Christ's every good work, truly, as Christ did to both God and neighbor, so I did to both God and neighbor. Christ has gifted us his standing before God, his standing of the perfect human life for which he was always the pattern. And even more on the cross, Christ bore the punishment for all of the sin that we deserve, all the ways that we have denied personhood. All we have to do is reach out and receive Christ by faith. We have been gifted creation in the Son, and we too have been gifted salvation in the Son. What else would we expect from the very one whose person is a gift from the Father? And being saved in the Son, we receive the inheritance prepared by the Father. We will one day inherit the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. In Christ, we become children of God by virtue of his identity. And we receive this great inheritance. And if you receive Christ, if you truly receive him, then you will recognize the pattern of your own personhood. You will receive your very self from God and turn back to God in love. And in so doing, you will recognize the personhood of others. You will see that pattern of the Son in all persons. And you will act on the claims that their personhood makes upon you. And this will not be the basis, but the very expression, the natural expression of our salvation. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have given to us. Thank you for the gift of creation and the word in your Son. And thank you for the gift of salvation in the Word in your Son. Help us to receive it ever more gladly and ever more gratefully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.